The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I wasn't here last time. Thanks to the guys for filling in. I, your mother was listening, and your mother-in-law, Brian, she had to listen to the show while we were in Captiva, Florida. So <laughs> I humored her and acted like I was listening. I, I thought it was rather boring. I think it was one of our best ones yet. I don't know. What was different? <laughs> Fred. <laughs> Fred was on his game that show. Well, we have plenty to talk about today. Before we get started, I'm here with a couple of my regular guests. Obviously, Dr. Fred Gertz is here. How are you, Fred? Certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy, along with certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repko. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Did you miss me? You can lie. (laughs) You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. That includes today, everybody. That includes today. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence and seeing Rudy Wealth Management. I just added that last part in just as kiddingly. You can tell I was on vacation, can't you, for, (laughs) for 30 days. I'm in too good of a mood for this gray weather. And welcome to those tuning in on Facebook Live, of course. We're always happy to have those people listening and watching us. Uh, Coming more and more important all the time, the social media stuff. Well, Fred, I guess, you know, the, the, the big question is and the big issue on everybody as I sit here and watch the TV screen and the market when I walked in about a half hour ago or an hour ago was up about 150 points and now it's sinking once again down some 300 points. It was down 1,000 points yesterday. Uh, everybody's all excited. Uh, I, you know, as we were talking a little bit ahead of the show, I don't want to dismiss it, the emotional. Uh, I don't know if I'll go so far as the pain, but the anguish that these type of events um, can cause. Because declines are always so sudden and impact, uh, compact, and uh, they just seem to take, they get much more attention than the, Slow, long, slow, permanent uptrend grind uh, over year after year, decade after decade. I mean, uh, people, I know people ask you, what do you yeah. think? Right. Uh, kind of big picture, all this all wrapped into one from an investment standpoint, an economic standpoint. I know those can be interrelated. Just historical standpoint, right. uh, before the show, you were talking about the uh, pandemic in 1917, 1918, et cetera. Right. Well, again, uh, most. Big events uh, are less impactful than you might think, whether it's a war starting or a terrorist attack or whatever. There usually is some kind of uh, short-term response, and then often over a period of uh, weeks and months, it uh, kind of uh, uh, dwindles away. Uh, I, I think what, what I was thinking about more was uh, what would a, uh, a passive investor, someone who doesn't try to pick stocks or, or time market time, doing a situation like this and my answer is probably not very much uh, the question is obviously we have a an issue with the uh, coronavirus and it's impacting uh, world economies and the market's been down 
I guess, uh, county today, uh, more than 4%. So the question is, shouldn't I sell my stocks because it looks like we're heading to something really bad? And the answer is uh, probably not, because if you think about it, uh, there's always two sides to a buy and sell situation. Uh, the same number of people who uh, sold yesterday, there are also uh, comparable people who bought the same stock. So basically, what the market is saying is that there's a chance that things will get a lot worse, and a chance that it's not nearly as serious as we expect, and those two are kind of balanced off at the current situation. So unless you have some kind of inside information or think you, you know better than most other people about where we're heading, the best, uh, best uh, response is simply to let it ride and let it work itself out. Isn't the current price, doesn't it essentially reflect the 7 billion overlapping minds of knowledge uh, and and at any given moment? Whether it's right or the right price or the wrong price, it is kind of probably the best indication of what's going on real time. And there are all kinds of people who are uh, probably much uh, more involved than than we are in terms of uh, trying to decide uh, whether this is really serious or not very serious. And they're making bets one way or another. And we're kind of innocent bystanders. We have no inside information. So again, the markets uh, makes mistakes if you look back on it, but at any particular time, the market is incorporating the information that's available. And it strikes me that for a lifetime investor in the great companies of America and the world, one would need to ask themselves, is, is, this, is this really relevant to me? Is the fact that there is this another, we're not even quite at a correction yet, uh, correction phase i wrote a blog on friday oddly enough i didn't publish it till monday morning uh, not knowing what was coming necessarily and that wasn't even the point i wasn't trying to forecast anything but are you ready for the next you know downturn and really what i meant is emotionally ready for it but it, it strikes me that we have to step back and say okay we can't control it we can control our behavior but really is this can can it have any lifetime relevance to my lifetime retirement plan and i think for people with an adult memory the the answer has to be no and that the only way that a broadly diversified investor actually can sustain a loss again broadly diversified in the great companies of america and the world is if it takes human interaction the market itself is not going to do it because eventually the fire burns itself out we don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know how, only that it will in the permanent uptrend in the advance of the prices and the values of the great companies of America and their increasing dividend streams come into play. So to me, it's a relevancy issue, guys, and, and maybe that's the best question to ask ourselves. Okay, maybe we're down 6 or 7% uh, from the peak. And by the way, I in that... Uh, gap are you prepared you can go our uh, rudywealth.com and read it I think it's worth reading obviously I wrote it but I wrote if we experience a 10% correction we'll go back to 26,595 well today we're I don't know 27s so so we're not even at a 10% correction level and I'd like to remind people that if you're going to own the great companies of America and the world and obviously you're going to own them because you're going to own those in lieu of owning fixed income investments because the return historically has been two to three times the return of fixed income investments net of inflation, that you're going to have to be comfortable with the idea that at least in the last 50 years, as an example, the average intra-year correction is around 15%. And about every four or five years, that correction will turn into an actual bear market, which is measured as for whatever reason, a decline of 20% or more. 
And then when we really look at those bear markets, again, I'm, I'm using a broad brush of averages here, so humor me. Uh, the typical bear market lops off about a third temporarily of the prices of the great companies of America and the world. That's just kind of the deal. And this is just, to me, to weigh in on this, this is what I frequently refer to as the apocalypse du jour. This is, <clears throat> this, and, some, and, and it's real convenient, Fred, to just say, well, we're down because of coronavirus, right? Or maybe we're down because the market is adjusting to the idea that Bernie Sanders may be president. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, but certainly there's a lot of leaders, you know, thought leaders that think, oh, yeah, that's probably a different deal uh, for Wall Street and investors if Bernie Sanders, for good or for, for worse, there's a lot of people think that might have a mm -hmm. negative impact on the underlying values of the great companies of America and the world. Well, and I, I think the key is, is my microphone working? Yeah. yeah. Can you get Dave's mic sound. fired up a little bit? Yeah. Well, I th there, there we go. go. I was going to say, I think the key is, it's like, well, going forward from this point, we don't know what's going to happen. Like Dr. Gertz said, like, yeah, it could fall further, but it's, there's also a lot of people that seemingly think it, it could it could go the other direction. It could It could recover from here, and we really don't know. So it's like the practical takeaways, <laughs> there's, there's really nothing you can do. You just have to stay invested. Unless you can predict the future, which you can't, you have like the only option is to just say, "Look, I'm going to choose an investment allocation I'm comfortable with that's aligned with my goals, and I'm going to ignore the headlines." And I think, you know, so many people say, "Oh no, I get it. We can't time the market, and I'm a buy and hold investor." But then they react to, you know, every major headline. It's like at the end of the day, <laughs> you once and for all have to make a decision. Look, I admit I can't time the market. I admit that the best strategy is just to buy and hold. So then I'm just going to stop worrying about this stuff. <laughs> Easier said than done. But I think that's that's the place that people have to ultimately get to. Well, I think what it all always comes centers back to when I look back at my 36 years, and Fred, maybe you agree or not, every successful investor I ever met was operating from a goals-focused, you know, goals uh, planning-driven investor. Okay, Every failed investor was performance oriented and you know uh kind of forecasting uh oriented uh actually uh, might be better to say they let current events drive they react to current events as opposed to constantly acting on a plan and this is where this is this is where you're going to get tested as an investor now i will say this in my experience people that do not have a whether you, even if it's a simple uh, retirement income plan people that are operating outside of that of course they're more nervous than people that have a plan and they can call their advisor and say uh i'm not really calling because the market's down and i'm worried about that i'm more concerned about is it having any impact on my life and the answer is a normal correction or even a normal bear market shouldn't have a normal correction shouldn't have any impact at all on a solid financial plan. I mean, the, 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 it should be just a given we're going to experience those probably pretty much every year. So we, you, this is a time to ask yourself, if you're extra nervous, ask yourself a question. Is it because I have a plan or because I don't have a plan? And if you don't have a plan, you may have a plan to fail. And that's it? Was that good? You like, no <laughs> silence? No well, argument? I, I think the, the main thing is that uh, it's just you know, holding steady and uh, – I was looking back, uh, the people who are successful uh, used to be, in, when I was a kid, it was a wide bought General uh, General Electric at a certain price, and now I'm selling it for a high price. Well, looking back on my investment, I can't. 
pick out a single good investment I ever made. Uh, and yet you know, I'm, I'm happy with my situation. And the point is that uh, when you pick winners, you sometimes pick losers as well. And it's better to, you know, uh, go with the flow and uh, capture the, like you say, the, the performance overall. Well, all the headlines I saw yesterday was centered around the biggest drop in X number of period of times. And I saw an article, the biggest one-day drop, uh, point drop in the past three years. And it goes, Dow's biggest one-point drops of the past three years, I guess is what I should have said. And this was, the biggest one was 1,175 points. That's the one everybody was highlighting, uh, you know, basically a year ago, February, February 5th. And I remind people, okay, don't stop there when you read the headline. Go back to February 5th of 2018 and find out where the Dow was when everybody was panicked because it was another 1,000-point down day. And I could tell you where the Dow was at. It was at 24,090. So think about how okay um so what's the relevancy of this biggest drop in the last year um someday we'll look back and when they reflect upon this one and we'll go oh yeah the dow was at like twenty-eight thousand when that happened and now it's at forty-two thousand. uh again it gets back to centers around this relevancy issue yeah the other thing too is that if people are uh not uh, buying and selling on a daily basis they still might be rebalancing so uh, with the run-up over the last uh, year or so, it, it would make made some sense to do a little bit of rebalancing, and that's going to put you in a stronger position. And for people that, uh, and we do this from time to time when we're at all-time new highs, David doesn't like to do it. <laughs> but we'll dollar-cost average into position, just for the issue of emotional regret. If that's what it takes to get somebody into their full-time uh, position in the great companies of America and the world, the stock market, um, we'll do that. And... I'm probably going to suggest to the guys, if we have anybody on that dollar cost averaging list, now that we're down maybe close to 10% in a correction point, we'll speed it up a little bit. We might do one extra one. So there's another way to take advantage of it uh, if you're not completely in your position. And as you said, Fred, just think about rebalancing. When it gets, you know, the adjustment's big enough, 10 to 20%, go back, circle back, and look at your asset allocation and make sure that you're rebalancing now here's what's going to happen and here's the answer and you're not going to like it is well what's that rebalancing really going to mean oh we're going to buy more of this stuff that's causing us all this pain the last few weeks and we're going to have less money we're going to take money out of that part it's the only part that's stable in my world right now and that's what you're suggesting we do and so yes historically speaking that's always the right thing to do is to maintain that you said it, David, as long as this has always provided that your asset allocation aligns with your lifetime goals, uh, that's when rebalancing makes you know complete sense to do it then. Well, and from like a sub-asset allocation standpoint, the thing I've been seeing a lot lately, which is really driving home just how people shoot themselves in the foot, is I'm hearing more and more, oh, should we you know, still have our international allocation or... You know, I have this extra money. I'm thinking about what, what if we just put it in the S&P 500 index? It's like that's just performance chasing. Like let's call a spade a spade. That's what it is. You're just saying, hey, I think because the S&P 500 has done extraordinarily well over the last 10 years, it's going to continue doing that. And the fact of the matter is we don't know what it's going to do in the future. But if anything, it's probably the opposite because valuations get bid up really high for the things that have been doing really well lately. So I've just been noticing that more and more. Just comments from clients about, you know, well, ha, ha, when do we give up on this international diversification stuff? And 
uh, should we you know invest more in in U.S. large companies or get away from our value tilts? Things that it's literally saying. Now that things are more expensive in the U.S., I want to buy them. And now that prices are low outside the U.S., I want to sell them. And, and prices, quite frankly, for the standard Poor's 500 and more particularly growth stocks, large growth stocks, uh, if we look at measures such as the CAPE ratio, uh, which basically gives you a good long-term indication of uh, you know the current valuations, how are things being priced, uh, you look, you have to go back to the year 2000, the very beginning of the year 2000 or the end of 1999, whatever you prefer. And then the CAPE ratio was higher, 1929. This, I don't know what that is going to mean over the next block of time, but yeah. the last time the CAPE ratio was really high was at the end of 1999. And over the last 20 years, the Standard Poor's 500 index only earned 6% a year, 6.03% if you want to be exact. That's lower than 95% of all the other 20-year periods in history. Suddenly, because of the last 10 years, I'm not going to argue that it's as overvalued as it was in 2000. It's not. But relative to all the other asset classes, it's one of the most, if not the most expensive, broad asset class in the arsenal. And it probably doesn't make sense if history is any guard as to get rid of some of the things that are trading at valuations where not much has to go right to provide a good return to provide to load up in an asset class where basically everything has to go right to produce a decent return it's just not sensible it's not a sensible strategy but human nature is not sensible when it comes to investing our wetware was developed to, to survive on the savannah right it wasn't developed to make asset allocation and risk and return trade-offs in real life investors have in human nature means investors have never really been created to be good investors and we have to deal with that if we're going to to become successful investors and at the end of my blog and I would I'd go read it if I was everybody because it gives you kind of some real things to think about but one of the brightest parts is not something I wrote as Marcus Aurelius suggested the nearer a man comes to a calm mind the closer he is to strength and I mm. think that's probably appropriate I thought that was an appropriate closure to my uh, blog, are you prepared for the next downturn? So any, anything more on that? I don't want to... How about economically, Fred? Just b big picture. Um, we're hearing some people decide, you know, basically the arm, this has to mean a recession, uh, a, a, really a global slowdown. Sure. Uh, does it necessarily point towards a recession? I don't think so. Itself? I don't think so. Uh, and again, until the, this came along, the uh, recession fears were really uh, receding in the background. Very few people thought about a recession in the next year or so. So it's quite likely there's going to be a slower growth now than there would have been without it. Uh, whether that tips the balance into a recession is probably not very likely. But again, like we were saying earlier, if it turns out to be much, much worse than anyone expects even now, that that could happen. But there's no, no evidence that's going to actually occur. And sometimes those expectations of w worse things to come are already built into the current prices. They yep. may already be reflected that, right. look, capital frequently outruns itself, right? We have this 200-year permanent uptrend, essentially, of the American economy with, obviously, there are interruptions, but the, uh, the uptrend is permanent and it's going to the northeast, right? And, <laughs> yes. and also there's a, a temporal kind of... Uh, 
realignment as well. It's probably this is probably not a good time to uh, decide to go on a cruise next month. But maybe if you don't go next month, maybe you'll go in the summer. So I'm supposed to go in the summer out in Washington yeah. on a cruise down a couple of rivers, the Snake River and I, the Columbia that's, River. That's, that's pretty safe, I think. <laughs> it's in June. I don't know. But, you know, I want everybody to wear a mask, but I want the mask to tell us I have it or I don't yeah. have it. Well, I don't uh, think you have a uh, on the Columbia or Snake. You have a lot of. Uh, uh, coronavirus hanging around. I hope not. I, <laughs> I hope not. I didn't buy the insurance. I probably should have. But there was no such thing as the coronavirus when I signed up for this darn thing. Uh, interest rates uh, have somewhat plummeted, guys. Uh, you know, 30-year mortgages, I think you're going to see back into the very low threes. The last I looked, they were around uh, 3.5, 3.4 in that zone. And, of course, one bank might have some less than that. And, and maybe on average they're a little bit more than that. But 10-year treasuries back to where it was a few years ago. It's below 1.5%. The Federal Reserve uh, lowered interest rates two or three times last year, but they really haven't done anything this year. But it starts to beg the question, Fred. I mean, yeah. uh, it looks like there's certainly room. It seems like this is going to cure <laughs> cure any inflation right. worries. And with a global slowdown, and I certainly see a global slowdown, uh, but certainly keeps pressure, continues to keep pressure off inflation, and then that gives the Fed Reserve, I guess, Right. I almost expect to see them come in and, and lower rates. Yeah, the problem is if they, they do that, it may people may interpret that as a sign that things are worse than they really are. So they have to kind of balance the uh, the real impact against the uh, kind of cosmetic impact. And consumer spending still strong, but it's slowing a little bit, but certainly no alarm bells. It just seems like overall you look at job growth. Uh, I read some an article uh, that I was going to talk about today, a recent survey from the Manpower Group. That's a job placement firm. It says there are nearly 7 in 10 employee, employers reported talent shortages in 2019. I know what they feel like, Fred. I have a complete talent shortage at Rudy Wealth Management. <laughs> there are still about 670,000 more job vacancies than there are unemployed potential workers. So, I mean, just fundamentally isn't, a, isn't an economy where we have almost historical low uh, unemployment rates. I suppose even that could... Can, can suddenly go into a shock, though, at the same sure, time. Sure, I mean, it can go up. But again, uh, if everything is close to its all-time low, I would, there's probably more likelihood it will go up than down. But we have inflation at uh, historic lows and unemployment at historic lows, which is, in most cases would be a really ideal situation. But here we're kind of worried about that. But again, uh, you never know. Like I, every uh, month or so, someone said interest rates can't possibly go any lower. And yet uh, just – last week they have so you never know which which direction he moves already way down so warren buffett guy said why would he well he i'm paraphrasing he didn't exactly yeah. use these words but essentially my takeaway was why on earth would anybody buy a u.s treasury at 1.4 percent when the government promises to in, create inflation target an inflation yeah. rate of two percent plus you have to pay taxes on it uh Boy, it kind of makes you, you read that and you go, yeah, why would anybody buy? Well, there are reasons you would you still buy ask, them. You could ask uh, Buffett, though, why are you sitting on a hoard of cash? Yeah, like $138 billion or something. That, that's earning practically nothing. So, again, his, uh, waiting for the good deal is sometimes costly with the, uh, the headwind of uh, cash that, that he has. And I think that's weighed him down and his, his performance down the last 15 years or so, uh, his performance the last of you know Berkshire Hathaway's uh, return. Uh, as I recall, just looking back at the last three, five, ten, and fifteen years, is really uh, has not 
you know outperformed anything except the hedge funds. Well, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I mean those are just you know mutual funds for idiots, Fred. Just hedge funds I mean, for rich idiots, I should call it. I, that's what they are. Annual wage gains have been above three percent for eighteen months in a row now. Uh, that's pretty good. Right. So I could see why people are worried uh, at the headlines, uh, the apocalypse du jour, but it doesn't seem to make me want to run out and scream recession, right. recession. But also we're not we're not likely to have big job gains either when you have almost everyone employed. Uh, adding jobs is not as easy. You have to rely on new people coming into the workforce. Yeah, and we're not doing a good job. Those, you know, childbirth stuff is uh, no. you know not exactly robust in the U.S. or around the world, for that matter. We're a little better than most countries, but uh, we still struggle with that yeah, a little and bit. Immigration is also, like in Illinois, one of the reasons why we've lost population is we have fewer uh, immigrants from other countries. So you guys are getting questions. Dave, you said you got an email today. I've certainly had some questions, though very few, in the last week or two. And really centered around, do we really have the right allocation? Not so much stocks versus bonds, but large company growth stocks versus all the other stuff we own. Because we, we uh, you know, don't, we're not going to put all our clients' assets into one. Is, I'm going to look for what Warren Buffett called it. He had a concern for everybody just putting their money in the... Uh, it said, uh, Buffett says, Americans public going wild with enthusiasm for an index funds. Well, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, index funds make eminent sense. But I think he's really referring, and he says, the American public is going wild with enthusiasm for passive investing. You buy 500 businesses all put together, and I mean, that's the ultimate conglomerate. So <coughs> I don't think he's really railing against passive investing so much. Right. But he's saying you might not want to put all your money in the S and P five hundred, but yet in some of his wills and trusts, he says that's exactly what he's told his trustees yeah. to do. Our view is there's more to the world than one asset class, and it's probably better to be more broadly diversified than to have all your money in one asset class. And so, thirty percent of our clients' assets are outside the U.S. And then within the global mix, we have a pretty strong flavor of value what we call the value stocks uh small company stocks larger you know just yeah. uh, it's not just a market weighting like a u.s total market average and these returns ebb and flow and that's how you know you're diversified but in the last 10 years we were talking about kind of the only game in town or the best game in town has been the standard and Poor's 500 index and that recency bias is really going to get a lot of investors in trouble and i think that's what yeah. warren buffett subtly is reminding well, people. The other thing, too, is that uh, financial firms uh, have their ways and means of trying to encourage people to do things that are probably not very wise. So there are a lot of uh, index funds now that aren't, aren't really a broad index or an index of a very small part of the market. Right. The argument is, well, you go into the index for gold one day and go into the index for something else another sure. day. And you're back into basically uh, uh, market timing, active investment uh, by, by trying to shuffle back and forth among passive Fun. So you, you, you do get uh, maybe lower fees, but you, you don't protect yourself against the, the market timing problem. Yeah, the universal destruction of uh, trying to forecast the economy, uh, trying to time the markets, or trying to handicap future relative performance based on past relative performance continues to go on and unabated but you can do it now you can do it now with index funds if you want it's, uh, it's not a good idea but uh yeah i think by it, narrow, narrow index funds sure and index funds like i said are not the panacea by themselves i always did this is not really an eloquent way to put it but it's like it's just a tool it's like a shotgun you could blow your brains out with it or you could feed your family with it uh i look at 
index funds is look it's a great tool if used appropriately but like any tool you can use it in an inappropriate fashion and do significant damage to you and your family's wealth and uh, of course as i kiddingly tell the kids that's why god sent me to keep people from doing that which turns out to be a really tough a real tough job is to keep people from doing what human nature is well, I would think that, I mean, to the, do the, the ordinary investor uh shouldn't even be concerned about big firm uh big uh large cap small cap that kind of thing i mean uh, it's, it's just too too difficult an issue in, in what regard they shouldn't own them or they, they, they shouldn't try to figure out they should be trying to uh one day de- handicap them yeah yeah i agree with you uh they have their place in a portfolio for some people uh we'd like to think maybe for lots of people but or for most people uh, but you're right. That's a completely different issue than trying to, again, once again, handicap which asset class is going to outperform in the next block of time. It turns out it's kind of a perverse nature of returns are that recency bias, that thing in our brain that signals to us, wow, look at what that asset class is doing. This fear of being left behind. I'm missing out on something. Uh, I just looked at the last four decades and looked how a global diversified, uh, globally diversified portfolio and the Standard & Poor's 500 Index basically took turns each decade. In the 80s, it was U.S. stocks. No, in the 80s, it was international stocks were by far outperformed U.S. stocks. In the 90s, it was a completely opposite story. In the last decade, it was a real problem for people because, once again, global investors did much better, had positive returns of 70 80%. The Standard & Poor's 500 Index had a total return of minus 10%. Let me tell you, that's a problem when you're in the first 10 years of retirement and your stock portfolio goes down 10%. And then, of course, the last decade measured by uh, the S&P 500 doing significantly better than it normally does compared to itself, but let alone comparison. But if you look at the last 40, 30, or 20 years, a globally diversified portfolio has done substantially better than just the S&P 500 alone. I have to say, just because it makes sense and regulators like it, it doesn't mean anything about the future necessarily. Only the, his, his, the historical data shows us trying to select the asset class for the next block of time based on the returns of the most recent or the past block of time is probably about one of the worst things you can do. But yet, people do it. It's almost the primary way I see people pick their investments. Yeah, well, and when I had a client ask about kind of like, you know, international lagging over the last decade, I I showed him like, look, look at how things can change though. And I showed 2000 to 2010. And what I did is I actually showed a few different asset classes. So I showed US uh, stocks, international stocks, emerging markets, and real estate for this decade and then we looked at the prior decade and sorted by performance and it's literally like a mirror image of itself so if you look at the last decade emerging markets has been the worst performer uh, i was just looking at your notes compounded return for vanguard's emerging markets index of 3.59 percent for the last 10 years compared to the s p 500 of 13.85 so huge difference huge underperformance there you look at the decade before, emerging markets was by far the best performer. And I think we have some performance here. It was up like 450% the decade before. So it just goes to show it's not that emerging markets is broken. It's just been on a long stretch of underperformance. It, these things can not just shift, but shift drastically. And that's and the whole point is we don't know what the next decade's going to look like, which is why we own all of them because we don't we don't want to put all, 
all of our money on one thing, yeah, you have the chance that you get it right and you end up owning the best thing, but you also have the chance that you get it wrong. You put your, all your money in the S&P and then we have a lost decade type decade and you have no return for 10 years. So diversifying just kind of spreads out those risks a little bit. You're always, you're kind of insured that you're going to own some of the best performing asset class, but you're also insured that you're going to own some of the worst and everything in between. And that's kind of, that's just the deal. Why is it so hard? If it's, if it's, that sounds so sensible and simple. Why do humans struggle with, you know, maintaining a diversified portfolio? Well, don't you, I mean, I think a big part of it is that 10 years is a long time. So it feels like, man, it's been, you say recency biased, but 10 years doesn't feel that recent. You know what I mean? And you see te- a 10 year, an entire decade of one thing trouncing another. And it's, it's, first of all, most people don't even look farther back than 10 years. So they don't even remember the time where it was different. And second of all, it feels like, man, 10 years can't be randomness. There's something to this. That, right. Like I can draw conclusions from 10 years of data when you really can't. Yeah, well, with it, uh, with uh, uh, pension funds, uh, often uh, uh, we get criticized. How come you're not in the top ten percent? Uh, and the answer is, if you're in the top of ten percent one year, you're likely to be in the bottom ten percent the next year. So, shooting for something where you have diversification, which means you're not going to uh, win the lottery any any particular year, also protects you against the the really bad outcomes. Yeah, I mean. It, it always diversification is always great when it's working. Well, diversification is always working <coughs> when it appears to be working in your favor from a performance standpoint. And you know, I, I tell the younger guys, Fred, that work with me, I'm like, look, I've been through this before. Yeah. I've been through it, and it was much more pronounced than this. It was magnified. And I'm talking about the decade of the '90s, where you look at the full decade, it was a pretty wide performance disparity between the S&P 500 and everything else. And then if you isolate the last five years of that decade, 95 through 99, it, it, was just, it wasn't even close. The S&P 500 outperformed a global portfolio by more than 10% a year. Very few people can hang on in that. And that's going to turn out, and this is going to continue to happen time and time again. They're going to switch places. But very few people on their own, left to their own devices, have the ability to stay the course and maintain that diversified portfolio. And, and that's why I always say without, well, Bill Sharp called retirement investing the nastiest, hardest problem in finance. But don't you think most people couldn't stick with an undiversified portfolio either? So that's kind of the problem. Like most people couldn't stick with just an all S&P 500 index portfolio in time periods like the early 2000s where that gets crushed and international and values doing fine or time periods like 2000 to 2010. So it's it's one of those things where it's you have to just accept that you're not going to always own the best performer and stick with whatever you choose. Okay, we're going to have a call here. We do have a call. I'm going to go to that one. I hope I hit the button right. It's been a while. It literally has. <laughs> Hi, this is Paul. Stan, you're on line one. Is this Stan that owes me a dinner? Stan, are you there? Maybe I hit the wrong button. Uh, I'm here. Oh, I can hear you. Oh, good. I can hear you, too. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear us? All right. All right. All right. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I'm not exactly sure whether you owe me I no, owe a dinner no. or, or whether I, I have the data. Stan, I have the data. I got, so I, <laughs> I just applied or just subscribed to a 
a data service called YCharts. It's one of the most popular now with financial advisors and financial people. Kind of expensive, right, too. Wait, So I'm going to just tell you that on July 22nd, 1981, the effective federal funds rate stood at 22.36%. Okay, so we got that out of the way. All right. All right. I will. Uh, there were two quarters when the uh, uh, interest rate, from the information I have, was over 20%. Since I said it stayed around 13, I'll buy you lunch, and it'll be on. on uh, <laughs> I'll even let you pick the place. How's that sound? I, I you're have lunch stand with you so bad, I'll let you pick. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, that's the first person that ever said that. <laughs> what? I mean, the prep, the the first part of it. I want to have lunch with you so bad. <laughs> All right, Stan. What's your other question? <laughs> okay. You have another. I got a couple of, uh, of, of comments, sort of. Uh, first of all, uh, a a little while ago. Uh, I think it was Fred said that there were an equal number of buyers and sellers in the uh, market downdraft yesterday. But the reality is, and he knows this, is the only reason there was an equal number of buyers and sellers was because of the market makers. When there's nobody that wants to be a retail buyer of stock, the market makers have to buy that stock at some value. So that's why you have these gigantic downturns. The market makers are able to... uh, get that stock at extremely low prices by law and they end up uh, making tons and tons of money but they don't have to buy them they only have to buy a very small they're only obligated to a very small quantity of shares at any given time so i don't think my per my experience for quantity pardon what is that quantity it's either 100 shares or a thousand it's it's negligible Market makers are not to, do not describe it. It's just the overwhelming. What we're really seeing here, in my opinion, Stan, and there's a lot of smart people, smarter than I, that agree with me, uh, and that's what makes them smart. Um, it's really when you have you have all these algorithms now that literally are scanning the news wires and about everything that can be scanned at the same time. Some of them are trying to do it quicker than others, and they literally look for keywords to pop up, and they automatically start pressing buttons and going into sell 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 and there's this thing uh, called have to press the buttons, but yeah. in 1987 everybody thought well it was a program traders and we have these you know market makers and all that it's like the market makers just back away and that's where you can get some of these free falls at the same time so th- there's no assurance that the market makers are going to go in and step in at any given time uh we know that because you know, look at the just one day in 1987 between sunup and sundown, the stock prices fell about 20 or 22 percent. Right. And again, Do they uh, have to buy the stock at their published price. Only a limited number of shares. It's it's not nothing that's going to stand in the way uh, and support and be supportive uh, in any material way ahead of huge high frequency trading and huge trades ahead of it. It's just the bit the bid ask spread's just going to spread so wide suddenly that really happened we really got the first real dose of that in 1987 where it was odd but theoretically put options should have got more valuable everything got expensive even call options got expensive things can get really weird really fast but market makers aren't really anything that's going to solve a deep day of the abyss well i'm not i'm saying they protected the market yesterday no, oh, they don't have they don't they don't have that kind of power. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone right. like uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. Supposedly, J.P. Morgan walked into the exchange and 
did something or other to, and, and put a lot of money on the table I mean, to stabilize a downturn. That, that's that, not going to that, happen today. Now, Fred, I will say this. I do think that certain Federal Reserves do step sure. in from time to time and buy and sell stock futures in the broad baskets and try to I think stands right in that regard. If if that's where you know he might he might agree or not disagree, but I do think the Federal Reserve the Federal Reserve will go in. I think there's two ways the Federal Reserve will do everything they can, particularly in an election year. I think they'll try to be as favorable and accommodative as they can from a Federal Reserve interest rate policy, and which kind of minimizes, in my opinion, how much the stock market can go down outside of some really strange shock. Uh, and they can go in and actually buy and sell futures uh, and try to change things around a little bit. I know that probably sounds paranoid, but I guess I'm, I'm they do that. Uh, I think they do that. Stan thinks they do that. Anything else, Stan? No. All right. Yes, yes there was. I... Yes. Okay, so I, I have your number. You did call me. You're such an honorable person. You did call me shortly thereafter and said, you think you owe me lunch, and I'm going to say, I have your number, I'm sure. But if I don't call you this week, you're going to have to call me back because that means I might have thrown away your <laughs> Post-it note. All right, Stan. You wouldn't throw away my number? Yeah, I don't think. By accident, Stan. I'm going to take another call. Thanks, pal. I don't know if we're pals. We don't hang out. I've never met him in my life. He's, but that's just the way I talk. A, a pleasant guy. Stan's agreeable with me. Yeah. That's well, he'll take us on, Fred. But you know, when we where we always prove ourselves yeah. right, it helps. We're going to go to John on line two. John, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Yes, sir. Uh, I didn't get to hear the whole program, and you guys were talking about di- diversified portfolios. And yes, sir. I've covered this. So I, I apologize. Go ahead. Sorry to talking. You never hear it too often. Um, so my diversified portfolio compared to the S and P 500 last year. My total return was around 22%, and of course, the S&P 500 was up around 30%. So as a diversified portfolio, do you think I was uh, in the ballpark, or am I missing something? If I had to pick numbers and say, if someone called and said, what do you suppose a globally diversified portfolio, similar to what we did, uh, and I'm not going to tell you it's exact, but if I had to pick a number, I'd say 22 23%. Yeah. Okay, so I'm in the ballpark there. That sounds good. I got one more thing for you. Yes, sir. Um, about, about six months ago, Stan said he saw a 10-car train, and it meant the economy was doing poorly. And I uh, I drive Route 45 almost every day, and I can't find that 10-car train. They're all <laughs> over a mile long. Now you're going to make Stan <laughs> call me back. Come on. <laughs> Anything else, John? Thank you. All right, no, thanks. That's it. Thank all right. You. And we have a call on line one from Rich. Rich, how can we help you? Yeah, I had a, this is maybe more uh, a more general than a specific question. But, you know, I, I know that in the stock market, for instance, I'm in my TSP account, and I'm in C funds and S funds just trying to keep it real. How much of the stock market daily effort is going to be people like myself that are just investing on a biweekly, monthly, or weekly basis and unless something drastic happens, they're not going to change what's doing. So a certain amount of money is always flooding in uh, to the market. Do you have any idea what percentage of, say, monthly or weekly trading that would be? Oh, I don't know what the number is, but it would be mind-boggling if I told you the amount of shares that change hands on any given five-minute period, let alone day 
or week well, or I'm, month? I'm not talking about total volume. I'm talking about percentage. How much of it is these investors that are in their 401ks or they're in their uh, IRAs or something that just automatically every paycheck they're going to be buying a certain amount because I would think that is going to offer quite a bit of stability to the market instead of the uh, uh, people that are investing more on, as you said, on the uh, daily sure. basis. So the market, stock market is like a screaming two-year-old or three-year-old in the grocery line <laughs> who wants a bunch of candy. There's nothing you can do really to calm that kid down other than take him out of the car and spank him. No, you can't do that anymore. Well, and so I, I, as my point would be, and then I'll let you move on, Davis. It would be nice if that was the case, uh, Rich. But the, the, right. the, the stock market on any given day is like a psychological uh, crazy person that, for whatever reason, maybe do something irrational. There's no common sense. It's not attached to any common sense or any reason. Uh, it's just a psychological driven machine. And over one's lifetime, for people like you, the good news is right. it turns out to be, as Warren Buffett put it, what, Fred, a weighing machine? It's not, yeah. yeah, so it's a weighing machine. It weighs the revenues and the earnings and the dividends and creates right. the, up, right. the permanent uptrend yeah. in value of the great companies. I think to, to give right. a call it, uh, credit, I think there is a, uh, a little bit of underlying stability to what he's talking about. The fact that there's money coming in every oh, sure. month uh, sure. pr- provides a, a, a kind of a, a help there, but it doesn't ensure, uh, ensure that the uh, kind of day-to-day fluctuations won't take place. And this was something that uh, actually uh, I heard all the way back in the 60s and 70s. The market will never go down again because we have all these people that are investing on a uh, on a uh, continual basis. But now we also have a different kind of thing is uh, what goes in eventually comes out. There are other people who are taking money out every month because they're they're retired. So uh, there right. is, is a certain amount of stability, but not enough to overcome the, the kind of things that Paul was talking about. I mean, uh, ultimately, right. yeah, ultimately, Rich and guys, uh, 20 or 30 years from now, the increase in the value of stocks are not going to come from cash flows in or out. It's going to be what are the earnings of these companies? Is Apple going to produce the iPhone 12 and 13 and 14? And their AirPods Pro are so good. They're going to make a lot of money there. But uh, it's that's what I mean by there's all these theories that are, there's books written about this stuff. The coming boom because everybody's going to be putting money in. The coming bust because everybody's going to be taking money out. You know, how many times have we heard guys, yeah, well, there's always the, the, the retirees were going to sell all their stocks yeah. and that was going to cause a collapse. It's the same kind of story that... Uh, uh, you, you can't go wrong with farmland because people are always going to eat, or, or you, you can't go wrong with buying uh, 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 some staple because people always need that. Right. Well, that. That may provide some degree of stability, but certainly no guarantee of right. You can go stability. broke. You can be right and still go broke. Yeah. That is, you could you could put your money in the great companies of America and the world, but if you overdo it and you get really unfortunate returns the first three or four years of retirement, that could make that could cause you to run out of money before you run out of life for sure. So. These things take a long time to play out, and then we have to respect in the near term, there's some pain that goes along with this. It's not free. Uh, let's see, we got a few money. Ryan, anything you, so, I was gonna say, if you have anything to add on, go ahead. Not to that, I was just gonna say what we see so, so often, time and time again, is just investor behavior takes over, and when you see these long runs in like the S&P's performance for the past 10 years, People start looking around and say, well, I, I, was, I held strong to my, my ideals and my investment plan, but now it's year eight, nine, ten. It still hasn't changed. Now it's time for me to make that change and dump money out of my uh, 
portfolio that may be globally diversified and try to overweight it into the S&P, for example. And no sooner than, than you do that, then maybe the tides change. And it just it's a, a lesson learned that you don't have to learn by just listening to a show like this where you don't have to try to guess and outmaneuver the market if you stay in position in a, a globally diversified diversified portfolio. I think one exercise everybody should do is, I guess it would work with even millennials, et cetera, but I'm thinking for people that are you know, in their 50s or 60s that have accumulated quite a bit of assets, maybe the most they've ever had, is to go back and look at the month you were born and find out what the Standard & Poor's 500 index was trading at on that date, what the dividend return was at that point. And if you do that, it might, it won't be enough, but it's the only thing I have that says, wow, if you can sell in the face of that, uh, there may be no helping you. The, it, once the disease of panic sits in, there's no inoculation. There's no vaccine. For, there's no way to fix it. So the key investors out there and listeners of this show is don't let yourself ever get surprised. It's just best to expect that once a year the stock market, the broad stock market's going to go probably go down somewhere around 15% in trial year, even in a good year. And every five or six years, it's going to go down. That correction is going to trip into a bear market of 20 to 30%. And that's the deal. So better to expect it and accept it. And I think it's a David Booth from Dimensional that said, you know, instead of changing your investments, you might want to just change the way you think. And until you can change the way you think about these big picture issues, you're probably never going to be a successful investor. And I just have one quick correction because I did see the number. So I've mentioned emerging markets value performance in the last decade. I see the number was actually a cumulative return of 212%. That's very different than what I said. I think I said like 400 or something. So I just wanted to correct that. Still, your money more than doubled versus in the S&P. It would have been had a cumulative return of negative 9.1%. So right. huge disparity there. Right. So all we have today, everybody listening, and listening to, you're going to be bombarded by the coronavirus, and it probably gets worse before it gets better. And maybe the market decline gets worse before it gets better. All I can leave you with is I can't tell you how it's going to get better. I can't tell you when it's going to get better. I can only tell you that it will get better. And when, by, But if you wait to invest until things look better, that's the equivalent of waiting until prices are higher to invest. And obviously, selling on a temporary decline along the permanent uptrend, unless you need the money. But to do it just because of current events has always turned out to be one of the biggest problems that investors have. The universal destruction of human nature can't be underestimated. It's why you need a plan. It's why you need a planner. And it's why you need a good advisor. I think if you have those things, these type of periods become much less emotional, uh, come with much less emotional turmoil. And of course, I'm saying that we're in that business, but it doesn't mean you have to see us, though we'd be delighted. We'd always be delighted. Well, guys, I appreciate you uh, showing up today, even though <laughs> I didn't not. rely on you that much. I was kind of a one-person, two-person show with Fred and I today, so I kind of Maybe I'm making up for missing last show. Maybe I was going to say, thank, thank you for showing up this week. <laughs> yeah, happy to do so. Fred, thanks for showing up. David, Rudy, and Ryan Repco, thanks for showing up. Adam, thanks for producing the show, and thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.